This is Guns and Butter. point is that deflationary measures, austerity measures, don't lead to a recovery in the depression. So you cut your budget, what you're going to find is unemployment goes up, tax revenues go down, production goes down. Now, after about six months of this, you get the first big breakthrough of the Nazi party. And that's the, the other thing that I think is, is important to stress, that the burning austerity doesn't just destroy the economy, and it does destroy the economy, but it also destroys the political system. You cannot go on with representative government and democratic institutions indefinitely with extremely high levels of unemployment. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, the collapse of Europe as the second phase of two world depressions. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss his paper, Austria 1931 equals Greece 2010, The Collapse of Europe as the Second Phase of Two World Depressions, including the three waves of the Depression of the 1930s, the October 1929 New York stock market crash, the summer 1931 banking panic and collapse of Europe, including the destruction of the world monetary system, which depended on the British pound, and the subsequent banking panic and closure of the banks in the United States. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, How would you compare the current depression to what occurred in the 1930s, or is there a comparison? Well, I think there's a, there's a very close comparison, and I think, you, first of all, you're very right to call this a depression, and I guess that's the first thing we better uh, get clear about. Uh, we heard, heard people saying that this is a great recession or a, uh, a crisis of subprime lending or uh, some other explanations, and this is all basically malarkey. It is a world economic depression. It is uh, of cataclysmic proportions. There is no doubt about it. Uh, on the whole, the potential is worse than what you had in the 1930s for, for various reasons. Uh, it is a breakdown crisis of an entire system. It's really the breakdown crisis of the entire post-1945 uh, dollar-based system of U.S. and British uh, banking domination over the world. Uh, and it's, it's not a business cycle event. In other words, it's not some kind of a, uh, a recession and recovery uh, process of the type that has occurred, you know, many times uh, since since 1945. Uh, and above all, the word I think that's important to, to to work with is disintegration. It's already a disintegration of the existing financial banking and currency system. Um, people think of something like the crash of 1929 or the crash of 1987. Uh, those are collapses. Uh, that's when stocks can lose. 
half their value or they can lose 90% of their value or whatever it is, uh, that's a collapse. That's certainly quite bad. But uh, as long as the stock market keeps going and the banks keep going, the institutions are still there. We're now in a, in a terrain where the likely events are disintegration events. In other words, the stock market is no longer there, or the bank is bankrupt, or the world currency system, such as it is, uh, ceases to exist. So I think that's, a, that's an important premise. And I say this because you have these uh, Austrian school and Chicago school uh, charlatans running around saying, well, you know, this is a, it's a recession and there's a business cycle and the business cycle will lift you out of it. That is a very, very dangerous misconception to think that there's some automatic business cycle that lifts you out. Generally speaking, you get out of a depression when you change your policies and go for an economic recovery uh, and pull yourself out of it. But there's no automatic uh, recovery. Now, to get to your question after that long introduction, um, the comparison, I think, is to the, to the Great Depression of the 1930s. It's really all we have to work with. And I think it's uh, really astounding to find. I find it almost uncanny to see the very, very close parallels between the Depression of the 1930s and, and what has been going on now for about the last two years. And I would say, first of all, that people have to remember that there's much more to the Depression of the 1930s than just the New York stock market panic of 1929. That is the beginning, but it's certainly only the beginning. Uh, I think if you go back to the 1930s, you'll see that the Depression essentially came in three waves, three large groups of events that destroyed the world financial system and in the process destroyed the underlying world economy of industrial production, employment, uh, consumption of goods and services, uh, world trade, and so forth. So let's just go back and, and, and try to sketch these because... People really are, are not familiar with this. I, I find people are, are surprised that, that there are three waves. They think it's really only one, uh, and it's not. So first of all, we do have the, the uh, panic in the New York stock market in, in 1929, and that then be, begins a, a long-term collapse in prices uh, in, in the United States uh, stock arena. But that's only the beginning. Uh, what you then have is about a year and a half later, 18 months later, you have the collapse of the European banking system. And this begins about, uh, well, it's about 79 uh, years ago, uh, right now, the spring, of, it's the spring of 2010. We have to go back to May and June and, and the summer, the spring and summer of 1931. Uh, and this starts in Austria. It starts uh, with the bankruptcy of a large bank in Austria, the Kreditanstalt of uh, Vienna. It's a bank that had weakened itself very much by currency speculation uh, in the French franc during the 1920s. So by 1931, it was on the verge of collapse, and then it, it did collapse. It ironically collapsed at a time when everybody thought that a recovery from the uh, stock market panic of 1929 was, was at hand. But the events of, of the summer of 1931, the second wave of the Depression, the Austrian banking system blows up, and most of the leading banks go bankrupt. There's a banking panic, a run on the banks. That soon spreads to Hungary. Interesting, because Hungary has just been in the news uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks. Hungary then goes. And then you have a banking panic that 
essentially tears through all of Eastern Europe. Basically, everything east of of, uh, of Germany is is bankrupt within about a month in uh, May June of 1931. That's Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Greece, uh, and so forth. And then you get something really big, which is the bankruptcy of the German banking system. And this is full of tremendous historical uh, portent. And it starts with a bank called the Danat Bank, D-A-N-A-T. And interesting for our purposes today, the reason that the Danat Bank is so weak and vulnerable is that they are pulled into the bankruptcy of a department store chain, Karstadt, which is there today, and it's going bankrupt again today. But above all, a company called the North German Wool Carding Company. And the North German Wool Carding Company does what? They speculate in futures. And I stress futures, derivatives. Futures are derivatives. And this North German Wool Carding Company was speculating in wool futures. So this in the time, say, of June into July of 1931, blows up the entire German banking system. Panic runs, bank shutdown, Deutsche Bank, Dresdner Bank, the banks that are basically still around uh, today, more or less, they all go bankrupt. And it, it essentially collapses the entire banking system then of, uh, of Central Europe. And, and that then leads to uh, the German government seizing these banks, a bank holiday is declared, right? They close the banks for a week or two to try to save them, but they can't do it. So that's really a, a big thing. And, and you can say the, the, uh, the coming of, uh, of Hitler is to some degree foreshadowed by the fact that the entire German banking system collapses in this German banking crisis of, uh, of the late spring and summer of 1931. And then the second wave goes on to the biggest event of all. Really, if you want to think of a central event of the world economic depression of those years, it's not really the New York stock market collapse, because that's simply a collapse. It's a disintegration event, and that is the British pound. The British pound had gone back on the gold standard after World War I under the leadership of Sir Winston Churchill, who insisted on having a very, very high uh, gold content for the British pound. He laid the basis for this this phase of the uh, of the panic. Very ill-advised uh, uh, move in terms of the policy. So by after the German banks collapse, so in July and August and into September, there starts a panic run on the British pound and on the gold backing of the British pound. People get nervous and they say, I want my gold uh, back. I've left my gold in London. I want to bring it out. This is the way the financial system worked in those days. And then we get the really big event, September 21st, 1931, the British go bankrupt. They default. The Bank of England stops paying in gold. They suspend the, the convertibility of the British pound into gold. And the reason this is so important is that the pound is the centerpiece, the linchpin of the only monetary uh, system that you had in the world at the time. In other words, international trade was overwhelmingly done through a bill of exchange denominated in British pound sterling and drawn on a London bank. Uh, and that was the that was how 
you know, commodities could go from Africa to Latin America or from Europe to Asia or from the U.S. to Europe or whatever it was. It all went through London. And once the pound had blown out, that blew out the entire system of financing world trade. A lot of people parenthetically say, oh, the cause of the Depression is the Holy Smoot tariff in the United States, and that strangled world trade. I'm afraid not. Uh, that's not what, it, what did it. It was the British essentially wrecking the only uh, monetary system that the world had. So this is the second wave. Austria, Hungary, Eastern Europe, Germany, Britain, all crashing. Now you can, I think you can begin to see the eerie parallels that we've got. Uh, this time around, we had the initial event was September 2008, which was the, uh, the panic around Lehman Brothers, bankrupt, AIG, uh, huge derivatives losses, we had uh, Merrill Lynch, we had Wachovia, we had Citibank then going bankrupt in, uh, in November. All of these banks then bailed out, so in some cases repeatedly bailed out, all because of, uh, of derivatives. So now we're about one and a half years into the crisis, right? If you go from September, October to 2008 into, say, April, May, June of 2010, it's about a year and a half. And what do we have now? We don't have Austria quite yet, but we have Greece, we have Portugal, we have Spain, we have Hungary, Italy, Ireland, maybe Britain very soon on the, on the brink. And I think this is, unless something is done, and I always stress that the, the, the purpose of, of reciting these historical parallels is not so people should think that they're condemned or doomed to, to repeat the past. The, the point is, if you don't do something quite energetic to, uh, to get out of this, this is where you're going. This is where you're, you're likely to be headed. Uh, so for various reasons, we now have the collapse of Europe as the second wave of this depression, just as it was uh, of the previous one. Now, um, we can go into this in, in quite a bit of detail, but you get the idea, right? Greece is in panic. Uh, all of these sovereign debt crises artificially created through hedge funds and through, through speculation using credit default swaps and so forth. Uh, but this is what we have, Portugal, Spain, Hungary, Italy, uh, and the rest. And then ultimately, the euro. And unless something is done, the current crisis leads to a series of, of national defaults, quite likely, by these countries and or a crisis of the euro itself, and that would qualify as a disintegration, because if the euro breaks up, that would be something similar to the bankruptcy of the British pound in September of, of 1931. It would essentially mean that a large world currency has gone into total crisis, and it's, it, it has fundamentally changed the, the way it, it operates. Let me also point out that, that Great Britain, even though they are not today part of the euro, uh, are very much threatened by these same processes of, of speculation and depression, although they don't think they are. They think they're going to be doing it to the, uh, to the continental Europeans. It's very likely that this crisis will redound back against the British. Uh, and again, if you look at the, at the parallel, right, <laughs> if, if, the, if the last time it started in Austria in May and it became a bankruptcy of the British by the end of September, well, if it started in Greece this time in April, May, Maybe by September, October, we'll have the bankruptcy of the British pound because they're it's a separate currency, right? They're not part of the euro, but um, they're very threatened. And all of the things that you can say about Greece or Portugal, you can say even more so uh, about the British. Uh, so 
it may well be that we were, we're looking at the disintegration of the euro as a, as, a, as a tendency. And then if the euro goes down, the British pound is going to be dragged into that. They're not going to be standing on the sidelines and laughing, as some of them think they will be. They're going to be pulled into it. Now, where might all that lead? I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, the collapse of Europe as the second phase of two world depressions. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Oh, now hold on, uh, just one moment, Webster. Uh, isn't it very possible that the British pound would go down uh, way before the euro? It might, and the, the way that that might happen, and, and this gets us into something we, we might want to handle in a minute, is that if the the self-defense measures adopted by Germany in the area of banning credit default swaps, taxing speculative turnover through a Tobin tax, the European plan to regulate and therefore really to ban hedge funds, at least in the current form, if those are successful in stopping the speculators, then the, the forces of world depression might indeed you know, realign themselves away from the euro and directly towards the British pound. And um, that may be happening right now. It, they, they may also directly realign against the dollar. Well, Webster, I wanted to ask you to hmm. reiterate what the three waves of the 1930s depression were right. as opposed to the second phase itself. Right. Okay. So the, the three waves, October 1929, New York stock market crash, summer 1931, banking panic in Europe, collapse of Europe, from Austria to Hungary to Germany to Great Britain, all collapsed. And then, what did that do in those days? Uh, essentially, after you had the British pound go down, people got very worried about the dollar, because the idea was, well, if the, the gold backing of the pound uh, is gone, the dollar is still backed by gold, but uh, maybe not for long. And as Keynes, at that time, who was writing, said, the, the curse of Midas, was cast on the on the dollar. In other words, the fact that the U.S. tried to hang on to gold for for much longer meant that that the forces of depression were were concentrated against against the U.S. So the form that that took was first of all a, a, a close brush with the collapse of the dollar in terms of the gold backing in the, in the uh, late 1931 and into 1932, and then by the summer of 1932 you get the third wave in the U.S., and that is the banking crisis. It's a banking panic. It starts with the crisis of the Chicago banks in the summer of 1932, and then it spreads to places like Nevada, banking panic there, um, banking panic in Louisiana, despite the efforts of Huey Long to stave it off. Those banks go under, and what it means is that the, the banks are shut down. In other words, the states begin to declare bank holidays. And then it gets very serious in 32, 33, when it gets to Michigan, right? the Detroit banks, the industrial uh, heart of the United States, banks controlled by Henry Ford and others. Uh, and they try to keep them going. But even with the, with the efforts of Henry Ford and others, there's no private sector solution. There's no uh, state-level solution. They, they go bankrupt, essentially, and, and, uh, or they're, they're forced to shut their doors because of these panic runs. And so we then get into uh, March of 1933. Uh, Roosevelt has now been elected, of course, in November of 1932, but Hoover is still president. And that lame duck period then was longer. Right? That's been changed in the meantime. So by the time you get to March of 1933, 
on the last day of Herbert Hoover in the White House, the two states that are still holding out are Illinois and New York. And essentially, uh, Governor Lehman of New York, from Lehman Brothers, of course, he decides to shut down the Wall Street banks um, in the night before Roosevelt will be inaugurated. Uh, and then once New York is shut down, Illinois goes ahead and they shut down too, so that by the time Roosevelt is inaugurated, every bank essentially in the United States has already shut down uh, through state bank holidays. And the, the purpose of the bank holiday is simply to protect the bank from having to declare bankruptcy. They can say we're closed because there's a holiday, not because we're bankrupt. But in reality, they are bankrupt. And it's interesting, uh, right-wing reactionary propaganda accuses Roosevelt of shutting down banks with the bank holiday. It's nonsense. They were all shut down before he ever took the oath of office. Right? This was nothing, nothing that Roosevelt did. Rather, he gave them legal cover so they wouldn't have to declare their, their insolvency. And then he was able to, to gradually uh, open them up. So that's the third wave. The third wave in the United States is essentially every bank in the country is shut down by banking panic and, and panic runs. So those are your three waves. Fall of 1929, New York crash, summer 1931, collapse of Europe, culminating in this really big event, which is the destruction of the world monetary system, which depended on the British pound. And then in the uh, phase of 32-33, say about six months after the, six, nine months after the end of the second wave, you get this banking panic um, inside the U.S. So if we apply that now to today, what might the future look look like? Well, if we assume that unless something is done rather urgently, this summer might see the disintegration of the euro. In other words, you could have something like a national bankruptcy in Greece. They could be driven into bankruptcy by the hedge funds and the, and the banks that are attacking them, because that's, that's what you're dealing with. Uh, and if that happens, some of these countries may drop out of the euro. And once that happens, it could become a, uh, a stampede. Uh, and in that process, I am very sure that the British would be sucked into the vortex. In other words, they would, just as in the, the previous depression, they would not, they would not remain immune. Did China or Japan play a role in the depression of the 1930s? In the 1930s, there are a couple of differences. Uh, China and Japan, of course, are, are very peripheral in the depression of the 1930s. It's mainly something in, in the U, U.S., Europe, uh, uh, that's the center of the world economy. But now, of course, you have China and Japan. How they fit in is something that these historical parallels don't necessarily show you. I would just point out that if there's going to be a sovereign debt crisis, Japan is in very bad shape because they have a very high level of indebtedness, and this would allow then the, the banks and hedge funds to go in and speculate against them. In other words, to launch a speculative attack on Japan and their bonds and the Bank of Japan using credit default swaps, that's, that's, that's quite, quite feasible. China is a very vulnerable economy because of a very foolish uh, policy they have. As a, as a developing country, they have hoarded about $2.5 trillion worth of foreign currency. That's, that's money they should have been spending to ameliorate the living standard and infrastructure uh, of their internal population. But somehow they have this idea that dollars are, are wealth and treasury bonds are, are wealth. Well, they may not be, so that, that they're sitting out there. But now, the third stage this time, if the British go down, you have this 
direct connection between London and New York. And the most concrete form that it takes is the euro-dollar market. There's a mass of U.S. dollars that has essentially taken up residence in London uh, starting 50 years ago, really. It's, it goes back to about 19, 1960. It's, it's a long-term thing. Uh, and a lot of the lending to the third world, euro-dollar loan syndications, a lot of trade financing, a lot of that goes through the London euro-dollar market. Now, if the large British banks are sucked into uh, collapse and disintegration, say, as the euro goes down, then that will immediately undermine the dollar. So that the, the final phase, the third wave of this depression, if we get to that point, which I hope we don't, might well then be a panic run out of the U.S. dollar uh, as these euro dollars are dumped. Uh, and that could then lead to a panic run on the Federal Reserve. And I would think at the same time, a panic run on the International Monetary Fund, which is in very bad shape financially because they've, they've, uh, they've taken in a lot of money, but they've also been putting out large amounts of money that, that you know, may not be repaid. And, of course, then a, a panic run on the bank for inter- international settlement. So that would essentially be a disintegration of the main financial institutions uh, that you have at the, current, uh, at the current time. So I think that's the perspective. If this three-wave hypothesis holds up, I can only say uh, this depression, in terms of the phases and the timing, is behaving similarly to the, to the one in the 1930s. You, you could say the base, in, in this case, the, the, the fact that this is now a worldwide globalized economy, it's, it includes more of the world now today than it did in the 1930s. But at the same time, the, the, uh, the processes of, of, uh, of turnover, right, of information and uh, the speed of communication and hot money, that's much faster. So maybe those two sort of cancel each other out. Fact is, between the first wave and the second wave, last time it was a year and a half, and this time again it's a year and a half. So we're headed towards disintegration. And again, the, the challenge, therefore, is do something to prevent this from happening. That's the, the purpose of, of going through this whole thing, right? Don't let this happen again. Well, uh, Webster, could you say a few more words about this uh, euro-dollar market in the city of London and how this works to fund international trade? Could you talk about that very briefly? Basically, in the 1950s, the city of London as a financial center was a dead duck because all they had was the British pound, and and that was uh, essentially being phased out. In other words, the residual... Uh, reserve currency role of the British pound was coming to an end. I, I think it was in 1963 that Saudi Arabia said, we don't want to get paid in pounds anymore, we demand dollars. Uh, so that was essentially the death knell of the pound. But London today is, in many ways, the number one financial center in the world. Uh, how did they do that? How did they make such a comeback? Right? How can they be back as a rival or even... Uh, you know, go beyond New York. And they did it with euro dollars. They did it by, by uh, creating a mass of dollars that, again, permanently are residing in, in London. They're completely outside of the U.S. regulatory purview. Uh, the U.S. has no control over them. It's actually very, very dangerous, right? You have a huge mass of your own currency held in financial institutions that you don't regulate. Very bad idea. But that's what you have. And again, uh, you know, if Brazil needs a loan, you know, they, they may well find that the, the way to do that is to go to London and get that uh, as a euro-dollar loan. Uh, 
uh, and and similarly for for trade, right? If you need to have these bills of exchange discounted, it can be in dollars, but that can go to London, and uh, the London banks have a very large part of their operations in in dollars. So if if those banks go down, if Britain goes down at the end of this summer, as as it well might, right? Because again, whatever you can say about Greece, you can say about the British. It's pretty much the same. And indeed, the the British deficit right now, the immediate deficit and the growth rate of the deficit, is probably greater than than anybody in Europe because uh, because of the way they've bailed out Northern Rock, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, Lloyd's Bank. Uh, remember, it was uh, Gordon Brown. Uh, the the head of uh, the British government, right, the Prime Minister, who pioneered the art of the bailout in 2007 when when the first large British bank, Northern Rock, went uh, went bankrupt. So again, if those banks go down, the, the the fact that they're such big players in terms of dollars means that I think the dollar will tend to to be pulled immediately in. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Collapse of Europe as the Second Phase of Two World Depressions. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, Webster, since today we are focusing on the historical parallels with the current depression, with the uh, Great Depression in the 1930s, let's talk in detail about this second phase in Europe that happened in the early 1930s, and specifically with regard to Germany and how uh, the economic plan for Germany uh, basically led to the rise of Hitler. Right. And I think this is, this is extremely relevant now because we have this austerity psychosis in, in Washington, right? We, we have everybody from Obama uh, and his uh, group to the reactionary Republicans and this Tea Party, uh, all parroting the same stuff about balance the budget, cut taxes, cut spending. Essentially, it means deflation or, or things that would normally have a deflationary uh, impact. Uh, we're told that Greece is profligate that we have profligate spending, that entitlements are unsustainable, Social Security, Medicare costs too much, uh, unemployment benefits are too expensive, uh, we can't afford that anymore, and on and on, right? And we're told that the, the national economy is like the kitchen table discussion in your family, and if you're not, you know, if your expenses exceed your, your income, you've got to cut your expenses or increase your income. So we have somebody like Nouriel Roubini, who, who claims to be Dr. Doom, I call him Dr. Pollyanna, because he, he's still asking, is there going to be a double-dip uh, recession? Forget the double-dip recession. This is a bottomless depression. Uh, but he also says the only two things you can do are cut spending or increase taxes. Well, that, that is, uh, that's a bankrupt recipe, and, and we have a very good example to prove it, which is uh, about 80 years ago. It's funny the way these, these anniversaries are working. Uh, but 80 years ago, in the spring of 1930, you had the coming in Germany, uh, right? You know, in the wake of the New York crash of 1929, which which had bad implications for Germany, to be sure. You had the coming of the Brüning government. Now, this guy is Heinrich Brüning. It's B R U with the two dots over it, right? B R U umlaut N I N G. So Heinrich Brüning. Uh, is the chancellor of Germany, uh, and it's it's interesting that he comes in at the moment when the previous government had fallen because there was a desire to cut 
the unemployment benefit. In other words, they had unemployment insurance, and it paid a benefit. But as the unemployment began to rise in 1930, after the New York crash, they wanted to cut the benefit precisely at the time when people needed it most. Uh, so income is ballooning, and uh, this is March, April of, of, of 1930. Now, the, the important thing about this is that the, the, the austerity policies of ballooning are maybe the most classic extreme example. In other words, this is the most sustained and um, drastic attempt to impose budget austerity, uh, budget cuts, tax increases, deflation uh, that's ever been done in a, in a, a large economy, say, in the, in the 20th century. It's really, really unprecedented. And Brunning goes on for two years, and he basically says, we have the problem of the reparations left over from World War I, and I, I really can't get into this part because it's, it would lead us very far afield. But he thinks this is a big deal. So he says, we've got to put our house in order. We've got to balance our budget. We've got to stop paying out so much on the unemployment benefits and so forth. So he launches an austerity regime. So the people who say, belt tightening and stop the profligate spending, let's look back to Bruning and see where that actually gets you. And where it gets you is basically into hell um, in, in the following way. If, if we sum up what Bruning did in two years, he, he does this all through emergency decrees. It's an austerity that's so extreme, you couldn't get it through the parliament. They wouldn't vote for it. So what he does is he turns to the president of the country, Field Marshal von Hindenburg, left over from World War I, who is this reactionary Prussian landowner who's sitting there now as, as the, the, the president of Germany. And under the, the Weimar Constitution, it's the president that has the emergency power to rule by decree. So when Brüning wants to have a new austerity decree, he sends it over to Hindenburg, and Hindenburg signs it, and that becomes law. So the parliament, right, the Congress, has basically no role. So you can say that with Brüning, you really do have an austerity dictatorship. It's a kind of emergency rule. Uh, and we see signs of this uh, all over the place, right? Anytime you have an attempt to take the power of the purse out of the state legislature or out of the Congress and put that into the hands of a commission or uh, some committee of experts or extraordinary powers for the executive to override the legislative branch, that is the beginning of a dictatorship. And we've got We'll talk another time about the austerity commission that we have here in uh, in Washington D.C. But now back back to Bruning. What does he do? Essentially, over two years, he raises taxes of all sorts. He raises taxes on beer, on tobacco. Imagine a beer tax in in Germany of all places, right? But he does it because he he does it by decree. Beer, tobacco, tea, coffee, all of these things. He lowers. The unemployment benefit, even as the the unemployment uh, figures are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it means that you get less per per week or per month on your benefit. You get a limited number of weeks, right? It's cut very short. And if you're if you're just a teenager, you don't get anything. And he gouges it out in in other ways. He has other decrees which lower the wages for all wage earners. They could say everybody's wages are cut by five percent. And in terms of the public employees, which are now under attack, I think the teachers, the the nurses, and so forth in many states. What Bruning does is he decrees what amounts to about a twenty five percent pay cut 
total over these over these two years. So the cut in the nominal wage, not even the the real wage. The real wage goes down more, but this is the nominal wage. Nominal wage is cut by uh, by twenty five percent. Now this reminds me of somebody like Larry Kudlow on CNBC, who he, he preached that uh, there should be an immediate ten percent pay cut for all public employees in the United States. Uh, that's the the Wall Street method. So wages are cut. Public employees are cut even more. Uh, the 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 entire social safety net is is uh, significantly dismantled, and pretty soon you have uh, what amount to riots against uh, against Bruning. He's called the hunger chancellor. Now, as Bruning himself says, this policy is a failure, uh, and you know you can read about this in Keynes, but you can read it from uh, from Bruning himself. The idea is that that if you cut the budget this year and think that you're going to balance the budget, you will find that the deficit is greater in the following year. Because the private sector, because it's a depression, the private sector is relatively collapsed. The government spending is what you have to keep the economy going. If you cut that, you will cut uh, tax revenues. In other words, if you fire public employees, they will no longer pay taxes. They will become unemployed. They will demand unemployment benefits. And this is what, what Bruning writes about. He says, the more salaries and wages are cut, the more tax revenues go down. The more uh, austerity measures are adopted, the smaller become our public revenues. <laughs> that was what he concluded himself about his own policy. So the point is that deflationary measures, austerity measures, don't lead to a recovery in a depression, right? In some other periods, it may look a little bit different, but in, in a depression, there's absolutely no doubt. So you cut your budget. What you're going to find is unemployment goes up, tax revenues go down, production goes down. Now, after about six months of this, you get the first big breakthrough of the Nazi party. And that's the, the other thing that I think is, is important to stress, that the burning austerity doesn't just destroy the economy, and it does destroy the economy, but it also destroys the political system. You cannot go on with representative government and democratic institutions indefinitely with extremely high levels of unemployment. Right? Today we have probably in real terms between 20 and 25 percent unemployment in the U.S. Right? When Hitler took power, it might have been 35 to 40 uh, in Germany in real terms. So we're, we're not there yet, but we're getting rather close, uncomfortably close. After six months of ballooning, in the fall of, of, of 1930, 30, you get an election in which the number of Nazis in the parliament goes from about nine or ten to about 110. So they increase their representation by about a thousand percent. And this is the big breakthrough. And it's complicated by the fact that in those days, the Social Democratic Party, the so-called the Working Class Party, gives its support to the austerity measures um, by supporting Bruning. In other words, they say, we, we won't vote against you. We won't vote in a no-confidence uh, resolution to try to get you out as prime minister. So the Social Democrats become complicit with the, uh, the policies of Bruning. And this means that if you don't like what's going on, and if you find that your income is, is being destroyed, there's no rational alternative to, to turn to. And there's nobody who's saying, you know, let's, let's uh, not have the austerity policy. Uh, a lot of people then look around and they say, well, who's the protest party? Well, it turns out to be uh, the Nazis. And, and that is a, that's, uh, in many ways, that's where the Nazis begin to gather their momentum. Now, 
what is the relevance to today? You look at Europe, you will see that the austerity measures in Europe in many cases are being supported by people who call themselves socialists, right? You look at Papandreou in Greece, Pasok, he's a socialist. Look at Socrates in uh, Portugal, socialist. Zapatero in Spain, a socialist. And indeed, Gordon Brown in Britain, Labour Party, a socialist. So the whole socialist international, I'm afraid, has learned nothing from this event. Now, the other thing with Bruning, is that he has a whole year of austerity, right, from the spring of 1930 to the, to the spring of 1931. And then right in the middle of his whole program, the banking system collapses for reasons that have nothing to do with the, with the balancing of the government budget. No, no connection, incommensurable. And as I stressed before, one of the reasons that the German banking system went bankrupt, well, the Austrian banks had been weakened by their speculation in currencies, but the, the thing that led to the collapse of the Danat Bank in, in June, July of 1931 was derivatives speculation. They had been doing wool futures uh, in, uh, in, in, in the previous year. So he would have been much better off saying no more, no, no more wool futures than, than imposing this huge burden of austerity. On the people, so Brüning becomes the hunger chancellor. Well, well, no. So Webster, you're saying that the German banking collapse didn't have anything to do with the austerity program. That that the austerity program destroyed the real economy and destroyed the political system. It provided no economic stability because the causes of depression are not located in the state budget. And if you you look at the situation today, the crisis in a country like Greece has nothing really to do with economic fundamentals. In other words, the the age at which Greeks uh, can retire or what kind of a pension they get, this it's simply trivial compared to the fact that you've got hedge funds and zombie banks that are massively shorting the uh, Greek government bonds using credit default swaps and other forms of derivatives and leverage to increase the, the destructive power of the bets that they're placing against Greece. In other words, it's an orchestrated speculative attack by hedge fund hyenas and zombie bankers that, that is attempting to destroy Greece. It's a, it's a political project. Uh, and in, in Germany in those days, they, they just there was no, uh, no way that you could uh, save the country through through austerity. You just you just couldn't do it. And as as the the unemployment went up up up, the lack of confidence, the hatred of the of the government system of the political system, became so overwhelming that people turned to the two alternatives. To some degree, the KPD, the communists, but mainly to the to the Nazis. And it it meant that the uh, the future of democracy was completely destroyed. By the time Brüning gets through. In June, July of 1932, you're about six months away from the seizure of power by Hitler. There were two other governments in between. There's von Papen and von Schleicher. They last three months and then one month, and then you get Hitler. So what made Germany ripe for Hitler is this austerity regime, and you really have to think about this. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The Collapse of Europe as the Second Phase of Two World Depressions. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Brüning uh, was somebody who had gone to school at the London School of Economics, <laughs> and he followed what would be called today the Austrian School method. Uh, 
and, and the Austrian school was known in those days, right? Von Mises, the guy who founded it, he had already published his main books before World War One, and then von Hayek, uh, the other big uh, Austrian school, libertarian, so-called, was publishing already in the, in the 1930s. And this was Brunning's, Brunning's mentality was, you can't interfere with the Depression. You can't stop the Depression. The Depression has to bottom out. The Depression has to burn itself out. It's a mistake to try to, to do anything about that. And you'll, you'll see that same mentality in people attacking Franklin D. Roosevelt today. Right? They'll say it was the New Deal prolonged the Depression because it, uh, it interfered with the Depression. And this is wrong to do. You shouldn't interfere with the Depression. So that's what Bruning thought. So it, it meant that he said, why don't we just accelerate the Depression and then we'll get it over with and then we can have our recovery. And the problem was that well before any recovery, Along came Hitler, and along came well. Along came a banking panic, and along came Hitler. So the Austrian school, interestingly enough, right? Um, their characteristic method is always that there should be a deflationary crash, that you shouldn't do anything to stop the depression. It's practically sacrilegious in their book. Uh, don't stop the depression. Don't interfere with it. Let it play itself out. That's all you can do. Now, obviously. People to whom this kind of uh, argument uh, appeals are people who have money and who believe they, they will have money. Because what they're really thinking is, if everything crashes and most people lose everything, I'll keep mine, and then I can buy them up at bargain basement prices. I can buy a new house or some land, or I can hire people, and, and, and we'll have them all at uh, bargain basement prices. One of the things with Bruning is that he seems to think that the Depression allows him to destroy the social safety net. He doesn't like the idea of the unemployment insurance. He wants to destroy that. Uh, he wants to drive down wages. He wants to transform Germany into a low-wage system. Now, you can see the parallels to today, right? There's a whole group of reactionaries, but also, uh, what can we call them, Wall Street Democrats, who think that this crisis is a great time for what they call entitlement reform. In other words, let's do something to destroy uh, to privatize Social Security uh, and to loot uh, Medicare and in introduce systems of, uh, of rationing. And that's, that's really where we are already. So I think the, these are the lessons of, uh, of Bruning. And people who come to you today with this stuff about, you know, kitchen table economics, it's like a family. If uh, your income is exceeded by your expenditures, you've got to raise the income or, or cut the expenditures uh, this is just bankrupt. It's, the, the, the national economy has tools which a family does not have, and it's to those that we, that we ought to turn. And if I could, let me just say something about people in Germany at this time who saw the way out, because I think we, could, we can learn something from, from, in some cases, the tragic uh, fate of these people, but they, they're people who knew what to do, but they couldn't get it through the political system. And I, I would urge people today right, to... Uh, to learn something from this. Here's the, here's the idea. Well, well, Webster, I was going to ask you about that, because there was a whole group of people in Germany at that time that had an opposite economic uh, plan, right? Right. There is, in Germany, we've been talking about the Austrian school, right, and how bad this is, right, the so-called libertarians, right, the... Uh, again, it's, it's the economics that you're going to hear from, uh, from uh, many libertarians. It's, the, it's actually Ron Paul and Rand Paul believe in this, um, the, the, the Tea Party in the state of Maine has demanded that the Austrian school be taught in the, in the public schools as, uh, 
as a legitimate school of economics. Uh, it's essentially von Hayek and Friedman. It comes from this thing called the Mount Pelerin Society, meeting in uh, in uh, Switzerland in, in the 1940s, right after World War II. Uh, and it's the thing that has taken over, essentially, the Buckley National Review uh, and, and so forth. And it's, it's basically a... Uh, well, the Austrian school or the Chicago school of monetarist and, and very subjectivist uh, economics. There's another school, though. There's the German historical school of Friedrich List. And without getting into that too much, let me just say what these guys in Germany found uh, at the time. In other words, the people who were in that tradition, some of them were in the, in the Friedrich List society. They basically said, look, we've got to do something about unemployment. And how can we do it? Uh, we obviously need infrastructure. We would need to uh, rebuild the entire, uh, really build for the first time, the highway system. The famous Autobahn uh, has been started in Germany on a very small scale in 1929, 1930, 1931. The first superhighways, right? The first parkways. It's about the same time you have them in some parts of the of the U.S. Freeways. Uh, so the question is, where do you get the money? to do that. Can you get it, first of all, from the government budget? And they said, well, no, the government budget is overloaded. We have to pay all these reparations to the British and the French. We've got to pay back uh, loans that we've taken out from the U.S. So we don't have the money in the federal budget, right? The federal budget is, is the central government budget is under tremendous stress. So where else could you get the money? Well, then there's the central bank. And the central bank always says, no, we only deal with bankers and so forth. But what you can do is through various means, you can force the central bank to do something not just for the banking system, but for the economy as a whole. And, and what they said is, why doesn't the German central bank put out three billion marks of state credit, right, credit creation out of the central bank, and we can use that to create these projects of infrastructure. We can build the Autobahn, we can rebuild the railway system, we can build a telephone system, we can go for rural electrification, electricity generation, and so forth. And we can put several million people to work doing this. So if the total German unemployment at this point is six or seven million, we can immediately cut that by two, three, four million. And then through a multiplier effect, a lot of the others will also find work. And I, let me just cite the, the, the main uh, person in this, in this regard. It's an economist called W.S. Wojtynski, who ended his career in the United States. I think he died in the early 60s. Uh, he had come from Russia. He was in Germany. And he wrote the economic recovery plan of the German trade unions. It's called the WTB plan, Wojtynski, Tarno, and Bada. And it essentially said 3 billion marks, not from the government budget. It's not government spending, and it's not government borrowing. It's government lending mandated through the central bank. In other words, it amounts to nationalizing the central bank, forcing them to do something that they might not want to do, but doing this you know, as, a, as a political matter, saying the political will of the country is that we don't want to have this constant unemployment. And you put that then into, into infrastructure. The basic idea is if the Autobahn had been built on a huge scale in 1931, 1932, 
you would not have had Hitler in, in 1933. In other words, it would have cut him off at the knees. It would have taken away the pool of unemployed that Hitler drew on and, and uh, the despair in the population in general, which, uh, which fed into then this totalitarian movement. Now, this may seem far away, but the, the, the way in which Nazism emerged was very rapid. And again, it all happened under Bruning. They go from nine people in the Congress or the, the Parliament to... 110, right? So a thousand percent growth in one election, right? It can come very, very fast. So the idea that, you know, this can't happen here, I wouldn't look at it that way. It, it might well happen here. It may be happening here already. Uh, so you got to do something about unemployment. Uh, what that would look like today is essentially the nationalization in whole or in part of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve today puts out zero percent credit to banks only. You've got to be a bank. You've got to be a bank. You, in some cases, you can be an insurance company. You can be a credit card company. You can be a money market mutual fund. But you've got to be a financial institution. And they've actually, at the, at the height of this, they had about $24 trillion available in credit lines to various banks for bailouts and, and, and other purposes. But the, the interesting thing is none of this was available for production. Uh, and by production, I would mean none of it really uh, available for uh, commodity production. There was very limited money for the Detroit automakers. There was no money at all for farmers. There was no, no money for anybody operating in what we would call the real economy of tangible physical production, the, the creation of actual uh, commodities and physical wealth. Nothing for them. So if you wanted to uh, get out of a depression... It's not federal spending that you're calling for so much, and you're not calling for federal borrowing. Right? You're not saying add to the national debt. You're saying harness the inherent credit creation capabilities of the central bank for job creation. And what might that look like today in the United States? Well, it would mean how about a 1,000 hospitals? You would have to rebuild the entire interstate highway system. It is falling down. Uh, you have an electricity grid that is constantly on the verge of collapse every summer. Uh, then you have your water systems, right? Every city in the U.S. has got this constant problem of uh, the water system breaks down, right? The sewage leaks into the drinking water. Those systems, in many cases, go back more than 100 years. Education and so forth. So if you, if you go through this, you'd also have to think about rail. Uh, so you can see the, the whole area of uh, infrastructure building. And the thing about this is these are capital goods. They represent a permanent addition to the capital stock of a nation. And all of those things that I've mentioned increase the productivity of labor. They make you more competitive. They increase your actual capacity to generate wealth. So if we want to learn something from those Germans, it's not austerity that is needed now. It's, uh, it's the credit creation. You've got to get control of it politically. The credit creation of the central bank can be used for job creation, but it's got to be capital goods that you're going to need that will give you the, the best chance. Now, today, if you have this crisis in the Gulf, uh, it occurs to me, a Mississippi Delta Authority, or whatever you want to call it, right, a multi-state uh, regional development project saying we really need reconstruction, right? We had this Katrina disaster. Now we've got the BP oil spill disaster. This is a whole area of the U.S. that now needs economic recovery and economic reconstruction. Why not agitate to force the Federal Reserve and say, hey, Fed, you've been lending 0% to bankers only. We want to now force you to open up a 
Main Street window, 0% lending, not to bankers this time, but now to the rest of us, uh, for, for example, the needs of a Mississippi Delta Reconstruction Authority, uh, and, and use that to revive this area, which is otherwise now going to turn into a permanently depressed area. So th- those are examples of, of what can be done. But in terms of the specific mechanism, the Germans had clarity about this in 1931-32. Right? Wojtynski knew what to do, and there's another guy called Lautenbach who was in the economics ministry. And interestingly, there was a whole faction in the Brüning government. There was the finance minister, the economics minister, the labor minister, the head of the statistical office, plus people in the unions, plus people in the employers' associations, right? the industrialists, the bosses. They wanted it, too. They said, enough with this austerity. Uh, this is getting us nowhere. We want to reflate, but we want to do it with this uh, program of of great projects of public national infrastructure. And I think that's really a huge lesson for us to learn today. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been The Collapse of Europe as the Second Phase of Two World Depressions. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what decides yourself 